All right. We've got a doozy this morning. Um, hey, if you're new, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, Pella Communities uh, is not a window company. Pella Communities, uh, we operate uh, uh, as a church, all right? So we are a church, and in a church are what is called ecclesiology, our church government. We are elder-governed, we're lead pastor-led, and we're member-regulated. So what that means is as elders, we decide the long trajectory of what's going on in the church. My job is to work with the staff to make sure that gets accomplished, and then uh, ultimately major decisions are, are put in front uh, um, before our members to, to be able to decide on. You guys can go front row if you want. Don't, don't be shy. Yeah, yeah, front row. Get it. No, no, everybody loves being called out, telling them to sit in the front row. Is that okay if they say, yeah, all right, good. There we go. Lessons. There you go. Um, so I'm, I'm going to jump into our text and pray. Before uh, I do that, though, I want to apologize really quickly. Two weeks ago, I had at the top of my notes uh, to mention Lent. And I know we're not like a huge high church and we don't follow the church calendar perfectly, but Lent does matter. And, and when we go into the Passion Week, we are going to talk about it. We, we do want to identify those moments uh, when it comes to the church calendar. And I just, I just spaced it. Um, now it's kind of known as like Mark Wahlberg's challenge, if you guys are following social media. But the reality is Lent has been celebrated for thousands of years um, by the church. And I just think that's worth us knowing. So this season is Lent. Um, but yeah, just wanted to bring that up and apologize. Uh, some of you guys had asked. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to tackle this text, which there's a lot to it. Um, it is one of the most debated texts in all of Scripture. So uh, we'll, we'll do our best to see what uh, God puts in front of us. But let's pray together first. Father, we come to you right now as a group of people that just acknowledge our frailty and our finiteness. Uh, we know that we have a temptation, a very strong urge um, that's brought on by our own minds, our own hearts, and culture around us to make you into our image. I just pray against all that crap. I, I pray, God, honestly, that we would see through and pierce through all that stuff by the power of your Spirit. We would see your word accurately, therefore see you accurately, and then we would respond appropriately. I pray, God, that you would use this text in sending your spirit to be illuminated and that we would grow in our faith according to Romans 10, 17, that it would be used in this moment as a discerner of our innermost thoughts according to Hebrews 4, 12. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I don't usually give outlines, but I thought um, it would be helpful because of how the text is and what needs to be addressed in it. So what you're going to see is in verses 13 through 16, we're going to talk about this confession that Peter makes, maybe the greatest confession you could make uh, of all time. Then we're going to get into two wildly debated passages, um, and I'll explain that. And then finally, the point of the passage itself, I think ultimately what it's saying. If you're new or you haven't been coming for a while, we're just doing a big Bible study together. If you're wondering why are we randomly reading Matthew 16, well, it's not random. For well over a year, we've already addressed the first 16 and a half chapters of Matthew because we believe the best way to understand the Bible is just go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we're committed to that. Now we're into a, a part where um, we almost, honestly, we might uh, have a tendency to avoid because there's a lot of confusion around it, but that's not an option for us. So in doing a you know good exegesis, we got to address this. So, so let's get at it. Verse 13, chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Jesus is leaving the northern part of the map, and he's going heading down southwards. He's leaving a predominantly Gentile area, entering into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And whether it be because he's genuinely curious or testing them, I don't know. But he asked them, hey, what's the word on the street about who people say that I am? And the four things that are mentioned, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, we actually know, if you've kind of had your, uh, your, ooze, your ears uh, tuned in to what we've been talking about, 
Uh, you, you've heard two of those already. Elijah has been attached to John the Baptist. And if you remember when Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, he thought John the Baptist had raised from the dead. And so there's this rumor obviously going around that's being said that Jesus is John the Baptist. You know, he's, he rose from the dead, right? That's not true. And then there's Jeremiah and the prophets. But he then turns that question now specifically to them. But who do you say? Now in Greek, it's hard to see, but in Greek, it's emphatic, Okay. So he now wants to be very uh, um, meticulous in going, okay, that's fine. That's what people are saying, but who do you say that I am? And we can see here that uh, Peter answers as the spokesperson for the 12, as he often does in the New Testament. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He kind of gives two parts there. And I think the two parts are worth recognizing. Number one, when Peter says you are the Christ, this is the first time, 16 chapters of Matthew. This is the first time somebody has not um, unambiguously just said, you are the Christ. Now, the second part they have said, you're the son of the living God. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 33, when Jesus gets into the boat uh, with the whole uh, Peter and Jesus walking on water deal. Well, we've heard you are the son of the living God. We haven't heard someone directly say the long-awaited Messiah, that's who you are, okay? I gotta tell you guys this story because anytime I come across this verse, it's always wild to me. 10 years ago, I was at a conference that uh, Barna Research was putting on, and one of the keynote speakers actually went onto Craigslist and hired um, two people who were atheists or agnostics who were willing to stand before a bunch of Christians and just answer some questions. He literally said, hey, I'll pay you 100 bucks if you come on, stand before this group of people, I just wanna ask you some questions. So it was a guy and a girl. I don't remember a lot of the guy's story, but the girl, it was a trip. I don't remember the details, but she grew up in the church, either went through like Awanas or VBS, she knew a lot about God, ended up just wanting to go do her own thing, and so she kind of hits the bottom of the barrel. Her life goes to shambles. Classic scene. She said she's in a hotel room. She opens up the drawer and there's the Gideon's Bible there. And she's super frustrated. God, I don't know why this is going on. Like, I just need to figure this out. Like, who are you? Please tell me, who are you? And she said she, she closed her eyes, opened it up, and pointed to a random verse in scripture. And I kid you not, it was verse 15. She said, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am, right? Oh, that's, yo, that's crazy. No, am I the only one? That's bonkers, right? Now, I wish I could say she like went on and led like some kind of crazy uh, crusade, but she didn't. She just wanted to do her own thing. And I was like, that's crazy that God just did that. I know that seems random or chance, but like God in that moment said, no, let me ask you a question. Who do you say that I am? I don't know. It has nothing to do with the passages. Always think of this as a fascinating thing. Verse 17, Jesus ends up answering uh, him. The him here is specifically to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The thing that's been revealed is that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, before we get to 18, which is the highly debated text, I just, for the point of doing really good exegesis, I want to call something out here. Some of you have an NIV, and in 17, your NIV says, blessed are you, uh, Son of Jonah. The NIV says that. I am almost positive that is wrong, okay? Um, Based on John chapter 1 and John chapter 21, I think the NIV got this wrong. It's Peter's not the son of Jonah, unless he's some like, son, like spiritual son of Jonah, which maybe that's the case, but he's the son of John. Baronia, the word that's used in his full name here, is he's the son of John. I, I think there's a play on words here. Jesus is in this conversation with Peter, and Peter goes, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, and you're son of John, right? And so that's how this interaction begins. 
Furthermore, uh, beyond that, I just want to call out, not just because uh, I'm reformed, but uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I think it's important we acknowledge when doctrine is, is addressed. It's not the point of the text, but it is clear that man um, cannot start the fire of the Holy Spirit within somebody to regenerate them, but this is by God and God alone. And I think this is clear that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven is there. And that leads us to verse 18 as he continues on with this thought. He says, and I tell you, Peter... On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, so where we got to spend most of our time. Uh, I want to look at the word and there, if you could, in verse 18. Notice it, it's going to create two different parts of this text. Part one is, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Part two is, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those are the two big parts. So let's first uh, deal with the first part. Part one is, the big debate, and I wish I could say it was 100 people or even 1,000 people. I'd honestly be fine with tens of thousands, 100,000, or even a million people, but it's actually closer to billions of people um, disagree on what this word means. I want you to look at 18. I tell you, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock, that word rock there, um, billions, billions of people disagree on what that rock is, and it is a big deal. Because the reality is, if Jesus is going to say he's going to build his church, he's going to build it on this rock. What is this rock that he's going to build his church? And you've got three options historically. Maybe there's another option out there that I'm not aware of, but these are three options historically. Option number one, the rock that Jesus is saying. So imagine Peter uh, and Jesus are in this conversation. Jesus is talking to Peter and he goes, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The this rock is what Peter just said. The rock is that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. On that rock, that's what I'm going to build my church on, that statement. Option number two, as he's talking with Peter, he goes on this rock, referring to himself, as if we could see Jesus in real time and he's pointing to himself. Peter, uh, um, you are Peter, uh, but on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Or option number three, Peter is the rock. Meaning Peter's talking with Jesus and Jesus goes on this rock. Again, if, if we could see Jesus, he's pointing and going, you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Now, if you're not aware of that third option, historically, and it's not in its totality, which I'll explain more here in a second, that's known as uh, the Roman Catholic view. If you're not aware of this, um, uh, Pope Leo in the 400s, uh, he made in his, what is called his first inaugural sermon, he made a statement that he should be treated with such great respect as in Peter. And he is not a brother, Adelphos, but he is in Latin, Papas. He is known as the Pope. He should be called uh, the Pope as a father. Now, of course, the patristics in the East disagreed, which is Greek Orthodoxy. The Reformers uh, uh, in the West, which is us uh, in the Protestant Reformation, disagree with this. But the belief is, within Roman Catholicism, is that starting from Peter, because Peter's uh, the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on, there's been subsequent Peters, right? There's been subsequent people who, following in that lineage, are today have that same authority. I.e., we're going to see here in a second, Peter's been given the gates uh, uh, to bind and to loose, and so the Pope has this authority, so much so that there's a dual. So we hold to, in the Reformed community, something called sola scriptura. We believe in Scripture and Scripture alone, right? And Scripture ultimately is the ultimate authority, but that is not what Roman Catholicism holds to. There is a second authority that is subsequent to, uh, I wouldn't even say subsequent to, equal on par with uh, uh, Scripture and can give us um, declarations, can excommunicate, but has the same authority because the church is uh, built on Peter. Those are the three options, okay? So the question then becomes, uh, what's the right one? How do we do this? And, and I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I, I did my best to um, 
to the nth degree, go down every possible rabbit trail um, to arrive where I wanted to arrive, but I did not arrive where I wanted to arrive, okay? Um, so to understand this, let me just give you a little bit of breakdown. When you're looking at verse 18, the first thing I want you to acknowledge, I know it doesn't seem cool uh, in English, but it's actually really cool in Greek. Look at verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and I'm going to give you the word for rock in Greek. You are Peter, or Petra, and on this Petras, I will build my church, okay? Some of you guys know the city of Petra. It's the city that's built into rock. It's called Petra because the Greek word for rock is Petra. You can hear this pun. Now, Jesus is giving us this pun and he's laying it out. Now, here's what I'm gonna say, and I need you to just stay with me, okay? Breathe, okay? Um, I don't think that in the conversation, Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think Jesus is the rock of the church. We'll talk about that. I don't think he's saying on this rock, the statement that you just made is ultimately this rock. I think he is talking to Peter, okay? I think he is. And, it's, and, and there's other reasons that I think the other two are possible. For example, um, Peter's in the masculine and rock is in the feminine. That does actually matter in Greek. They're just not, I, I'm telling you, I went down and studied to the best of my ability to see why these other views would be the case. And they just didn't hold up linguistically. They didn't hold up um, uh, historically. And honestly, when you're just trying to do good exegesis, there's a removal of part of what in this conversation that I think is just lost if we don't say that's the case. Now, that being said, I'm not dying on this hill. Some of you can go like, you know, whatever. Now, I'll get to the whole Pope thing in a second. What I don't want us to do is what D.A. Carson says, and I think it's helpful. He says, if it were not for Protestant reactions against extremes of Roman Catholic interpretation, it is doubtful whether many would have taken rock to be anything or anyone than Peter. I think there's reasons to to believe he's right. I think those of you who know about this this debate and know know, how much at enmity the Catholic Church and the Protestants have been for 500 years, you're quick to go, it can't be Peter. Maybe, but like the reality is if you just slow down and go, don't be so reactionary, I think there might be an answer embedded in this. And it's hard to not see it. Let me, let me give you reasons why I think based on what I, I see. Number one, there's something called the Pichetta, which is the Aramaic translation. So if you want to ask, did, did um, Jesus speak Greek to his disciples? No. Okay, Matthew gives us um, the original transcript and all the autographs uh, after that immediately in Greek. So that's what we have Greek as a language, which is a perfect language for us to be able to translate the Bible in another conversation. But in Aramaic is most likely what he's speaking. This is what comes from this translation. It doesn't change the words from Petra to Petros. It just uses Kepa. You are Kepa and on this Kepa. Now, I think Greek is keeping you are Peter and on this Petras, this Petras, these two words together because it wants to keep the pun. It's trying to communicate to us that Jesus is communicating this. The the way that I can explain this is um, this last week, uh, me and some guys were working on this house together and I kind of delegated all these tasks. Somebody needed help with the plumbing and somebody helped me to do trim and somebody needed to do electrician, uh, electricity. And so um, I had one of our guys uh, who goes to the church, his name's Christian Johnson. Um, I had him do all the face plates and change out all the outlets, right? And so we were calling him our electrician. And it quickly dawned on us that his name is Christian. And we kept calling him our elect Christian. Now this is a double, maybe even a triple entendre, y'all, okay? Because listen, he's an elect Christian. You see what I'm saying, okay? But he's our electrician. So it's like, it was, okay, you guys get it, right? Now listen, that's really cool. It wouldn't have made sense if he was the plumber. Oh, there he is, the elect plumber. Like, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. When you remove that, you're removing the dialogue. Furthermore, if Jesus wanted to make himself the rock, right, the Petras there, um, 
There's another word that he could have used to describe Peter, which is the word lithos. Right? Some of you guys are familiar with that Greek word. It just means various stone. It's the word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 2. I think, I think no, we have to lean back. And then furthermore, the, my last point where I just couldn't escape is in the analogy built into the text, it's hard to not see Peter as the rock. Now, I know for some of you guys who've already checked out, you're going, fine, it's Peter's rock, I don't care. You gotta understand, 2,000 years of history, Catholics and Protestants, this is a big deal, why we're disagreeing. And, 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 and um, I'm gonna talk about why I'm not Catholic in a second, okay? But, but the reality is, I don't wanna sway from this, and the analogy itself, I think, does push us to the fact that in this analogy, Jesus is the builder, okay? And he's building on a foundation, a rock. He's not the house, he's the builder of the house. And, and it's okay if sometimes when we live in the analogy, it doesn't make other things not true. Me- meaning, let me give you some verses uh, by way of examples so you can understand this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that Jesus is building his church. But you know how Paul describes himself? Paul just describes himself as an expert builder in the church. So is Jesus building the church? Well, no, it's not removing itself from the analogy. It's fine. Or, or an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, the next verse, Jesus is the foundation of the church. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. This is, these are not at odd with one another, but entering into the analogy, we got to stay true to the analogy. Another example is in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 3, Jesus has the keys, but we'll find out here in a second that, that uh, Peter and the apostles have the keys. Or in John chapter 9, Jesus is the light. Yet we saw in Matthew chapter 5, we're the light. We're salt and light. And so I think not to, to not be so quick to remove ourselves. So that being said, um, I think it's okay to say as we end this conversation, Peter is the this rock in this rock. He is, okay? But what do we do with this? Now, to not be scared and not be afraid of that, I think there are things that point to this uh, in a more um, holistic, biblical way. Let me give you some examples of this, why we shouldn't be afraid of this. And then I promise we'll talk about Catholicism here in a second, okay? Number one, Peter is the first to announce the gospel to the Jews in Acts chapter two. That's true. Number two, him and John are clear on the inclusion of the Samaritan church in Acts chapter eight. Uh, Furthermore, if you're not aware of the big totality of the story of scripture, in the book of Acts, there's 28 chapters. The first 11 chapters follow Peter. Chapters 12 through 28 follow Paul, okay? Well, in chapters 10 and 11, there's this interaction with Peter and God showing him that the Gentiles, so it's meant to go, Peter, you've been evangelizing to the Jews, Paul's gonna evangelize to the Gentiles, but there's this transition with Peter as he's sitting on a roof and he gets this vision that the Gentiles are included into the church, So I think in the totality of Peter, God is starting. Jesus is starting with Peter, and that's okay. Now listen to me. Nowhere in anything that I just said did I confirm at all the papacy, and by this, a small list, I did not say anything about Peter's successor, the infallibility of the Pope, exclusive authority. I think all of that is heresy, okay? I think the ultimate authority belongs to one man, one man alone in Jesus Christ and him giving his apostles what we have now in the canon, written scripture. None of what I just laid out is, as a matter of fact, there are big issues that Catholics have to wrestle with. Having some Catholic friends knowing that they have to wrestle with this. For example, Peter's one of the first disciples to die. John, one of the last disciples, uh, he actually lives years after Peter. So does John as an apostle have to submit to the successor of Peter? 
I mean, there's lots of things within the Catholic Church, and maybe this is a side note, I'm not trying to throw shade at all for those of you who grew up Catholic, but there are a lot of things that with the um, uh, Constantine, uh, uh, Constantine coming to power, a melding of, of certain things that you see of pagan idolatry melding itself with certain ideas of Catholicism, of praying to Mary, praying to the saints, transubstantiation, the fact that when we come here, we do not believe that these elements become the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Consubstantiation versus transubstantiation, they believe that it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ, and then also the Pope. And I can go on and on. There are issues within Catholicism. I am not Catholic, nor do I advocate for the papacy at all. That doesn't mean I need to swing the pendulum. That doesn't mean I, like, I still want to be a good Bible student and go, but what is clear is he is referring to Peter. And so how? How is he referring to Peter? Let me read something to you from Craig Bloomberg. Um, I was... Uh, Corrected by the sound booth this morning that it's Blomberg, but I'm going to keep with Bloomberg, okay? That just sounds weird. As Johnny said, yeah, Blomberg sounds like somewhere in like DuckTales, like the mayor of Blomberg. Um, what the New Testament does show is that Peter is the first to make this formal confession and that his prominence continues in the earliest years of the church, Acts chapter 1 and, uh, all the way through Acts chapter 12, which is totally true, Okay. But he, along with John, can be sent by the apostle. So Peter is sent in Acts chapter 8. And he is held accountable for his actions before the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 11. Peter does not have the ultimate. He stands before the council. Uh, We also see that uh, Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2. He is, in short, primus inter paras, which is a Latin word for first among equals. And on the foundation of such men, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus built his church. This is precisely why Jesus, towards the close of his earthly ministry, spent so much time with him. The honor was not earned, but stemmed from divine revelation and Jesus uh, uh, and Jesus' building work. So it is true. You would not be biblically informed if you did not state it like this. It's very simple, okay? Jesus is the cornerstone. But in building his house, he builds a foundation. The foundation he uses is the apostles. And in this moment, in talking to Peter, as he's talking to Peter, through, and also Peter through proxy to the disciples, that is, that is where he decides to start. That's how he chooses to start this whole thing. As a matter of fact, um, I've mentioned it already a couple times, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is not anti-scripture. If you go back and read Acts chapter 2, you can see what the early church devoted themselves to. You know what the early church devoted themselves to? And I quote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So so Jesus, in, in declaring this to Peter, you are the rock and on you I build my church. It is true. It has nothing to do with papacy. Um, it's not confirming the, the Roman Catholic Church, but it is good exegesis to say that would be the case. Now, again, I might be wrong, and so I pray. I genuinely pray, and I'll pray after this. Wherever I'm wrong in this, honestly, like, maybe like some amnesia kick in, you forget everything I said, and you come to the right uh, revelation. But I, I don't think I am, but that's okay. Like, you, we may disagree on this. Here's the good news. Whatever I just said isn't the point of the text, okay? I gotta bring up 15 minutes because it's a huge, widely debated thing, but the point of the text is in his next words. Uh, and I will build my church. That's the point of the text, I want, you to, I want to be audacious enough to actually change a verse, okay? Some of you guys are like, well, you're already Roman Catholic, so just keep going at this point, okay? <laughs> Breathe, okay, relax. Um, here, here's the thing. Jesus makes this declaration, I will build my church. I don't even need to tell you in Greek, it's in the future tense. You can hear it in English. I will build my church. Jesus is here 2,000 years ago. The problem is we're 2,000 years later on the timeline. And so Jesus makes that declaration over there, and this gives us three options as to if Jesus is right, if he's true and is as powerful as we believe he is, when he said he's going to build a church, 
that church is going to be built. That is true. And so we got three options. Number one, saying it in the future, somewhere between uh, where we are now and where he was, he has built his church. He's already built it. I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred AD. He did build his church. He said he was going to, and he did. That's one option. Option number two is, at some point in the future, he's going to, but he just hasn't yet. In the same way that he's going to return, but he just hasn't returned yet. He will build a church. There's no denying it. But in the future, I don't know, 2158, he's going to build his church. Or option number three, which is in the confines of orthodoxy, and I think most of us would agree, this is where I'm audacious enough to change the scripture, reading it 2,000 years later, if Jesus was to make the same statement, I think the way that we would articulate it is not in what is called in the Greek the future tense, but what is called the perfect tense in Greek. He would say, I am building my church. I think that's, that's the confines of orthodoxy, meaning Jesus starts to build his church and has continued to build his church and is building his church and will build his church. Now listen, this is fascinating. Slow down and be a good Bible student for a second and tie all the scripture together. Take Matthew 16 and couple it with, if you could, just couple it with 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 calls us living stones of the household of God. Now all of a sudden, like I'm hoping dots are being connected right now. This is in God's master plan. This is what he has done. He has come, Jesus being the cornerstone, and he has laid a foundation of a house. That foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now we have how to know what is true north, what to call out, what belongs in the south, what brick is going to be set. We have the foundation of the canon. We have 60, uh, no, 27, 39, 66 books. Yep, yep, I'm a pastor. I can do this. Okay, 66 books uh, in the Bible that we would go, this is correct. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, coupled with this, looks as, and I, I saw this in the first service, like, let's just keep using it in the other services, but we're in a brick building. We can see brick by brick, he's continued to build as living stones. So every generation from 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century to 21st century, now as we exist, we, every generation is holding their hands up going, Jesus is building us. We're being built in real time. This is happening. Now, I wanted to provide very tangible ways that you can see this because I think that can be said and go, okay, cool. He's building his church. No, no, dog, listen to this. Listen, through years of councils, through years of prosperity, persecution, through translation issues, through debates, through the Puritans, the Reformers, the denominations, the traditions, the joys, the pains, and the confusion, Jesus has continued to build his church. As a church, we held up Western civilization not once, not twice, but three times. We have created the largest organizations of global aid known to mankind. As we've continued to gather, uh, we've continued to uh, 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 use our churches, our places of worship as safe havens in times of war, natural disaster, famine, and need. We once held Geneva together, the Netherlands together, and Ireland together. We have fought against racism, slavery, and child trafficking. Jesus has built his church and continue to build his church with a gathering as small as five, all the way up to 500,000 people have gathered as Jesus continues to build his church. And when we meet, we meet in schools, parks, steeples, streets, bars, movie theaters, homes, Solomon's portico, and even historically sewers. Rome tried to stop us. North Korea tries to stop us. China tries to stop us. But all of them would be better off to try to stop the sun from shining, the waves from rolling, the earth from turning to stop the pronoun in the I will build my church because Jesus is that pronoun. Jesus is so powerful that every time you try to snuff him out and try to stop him, you don't stand a chance. He has said he'll build his church. He has continued to build his church and he will continue to build his church. This is why we can change it into the perfect. The dude's a big deal. He made this declaration and he continues to do it. Here's what's wild. 
It's happening right now. Like now, 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 right now. And again, now, in real time. It's not just happening with the reformers and it's just not happening with your kids in the future. Right now, us gathering, us living on mission, Jesus is building his church. Brick by brick, living stones are being laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's crazy. That when it's all said and done, you and I will be forgotten. Nobody here is gonna remember this brick. Nobody. Walk out of here. Can you tell me the 448th brick from the left and you know 13 bricks high? Nobody remembers that. We're forgotten. But we know buildings here. When ultimately the church exists because Jesus said it would, that it's gonna to continue to grow, that he's gonna be the master, the king, the head over it, and that is true. And that is the point of the text. Now, that being said, we obviously get to this, uh, uh, this next part, but before I do, can I just uh, read a quote to you real quick from uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Strength to Love. It says, don't be afraid to defend the church where necessary. Certainly the church is not perfect, and I'm often ashamed of the church, but in, sight, but in spite of its errors, I would hate to see what the world would look like without it. He's right. He's right. Like him or not, he's right. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember we had that word and there? So the first part led us all the way up to this. He's going to build his church on the rock, however you want to translate that. He's going to build it and quotes, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is again the second part of how this is debated, and maybe I'm going off kilter to where some of you land. I was always taught that the gates of hell are like the gates open, like the gates of Mordor, and like all the soldiers and the orcs go out. Like it's a, it's we are on the, um, we are on the defense, and that the gates of hell are coming at us. But honestly, I, that's not how I read it. And it's not even just the, the way that I understand gates are a defensive mechanism. But furthermore, the word prevail, the way we'd interpret the word prevail means um, like overcome. So not like it's going to like it can't it, it, it's not going to it's going to be taken over. It's going to be taken over as the language here. The gates of, of Hades, the gates of hell are not going to hold up to and what I think the text is ultimately saying our offense. I think this is actually putting us on the offense. And I believe this because of verse 19. I think 19 doubles down on this idea. He goes on to say, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, which we'll talk about at a later date, they strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I think what's happening here is the apostles and the disciples as the foundation, we now living a structure on top of that foundation. We are on the offensive entering into the space of the kingdom of darkness. Now, there's confusion as to what exactly these binding, we start talking about binding and loosening, what's going on. Well, here's uh, uh, what uh, Bloomberg said, Blomberg. It's not that the apostles were given the privilege of changing God's mind. I don't have this on the screen, I apologize. Or whatever they decided on earth would be duplicated in heaven. Rather, they were encouraged that as they move forward in their, apostle, in their um, uh, apostolic duties, they would be fulfilling God's plan in heaven. Meaning, let me just say it like this. Right now as believers... We hold to a worldview that Jesus is the Christ. He is son of the living God. We are standing on the apostles and the prophets and their teachings. And we have that as a true north for us. We enter into the space of the kingdom of darkness. And we say this worldview is wrong. That's not what is best. And we call it out. Because listen, there are people who unbeknownst to themselves are blinded. They are slaves. They are held captive in that kingdom of darkness. And we loosen them. We loosen them. And so based on the authority of Jesus and Jesus alone, given from the apostles and prophets, we enter into that spaces and we only have any type of authority that's rooted in scripture. Meaning when we quote scripture, this is why this is huge. 
This is why some of you got to get past, you ain't cooling anybody into the kingdom. You're not nicing anyone or romanticizing anyone into the kingdom. The environments that we enter are hostile to what you believe, okay? And without the word of God and a countercultural um, worldview that says, no, no, I'm not just trying to be buddy-buddy with you and kind of live like you. No, 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 we are different. And your worldview will fail you. It's gonna fail you. And I'll be here for you when it does, but let me show you why this kingdom of darkness is ultimately letting you down. We enter into those spaces by the work of God continuing to follow in the steps of the apostles. In no way am I saying we have the authority of the apostles, but only because of his word. That we're not cooling anyone in. We're not trying to coax anyone in. No, no, no. There needs to be a hostile takeover of the heart through the word of God that they need to know they're sinners and they need to repent. And that's really hard for some of you guys because you think you have a better tact than what scripture is saying and you don't. Now, um, I want to read something to you, uh, again, from D.A. Carson, because everything I just said, can I, can I pause and shelf for a second? There's a trickiness to all of this that I need you to, to understand how this works. If you can roll back in your mind three chapters ago in Matthew, which was months ago, but in chapter 13, we went through a bunch of parables, okay? These parables, which is just a story alongside a truth, were all about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, uh, what I try to show, has been um, echoed and continued to be planted all the way back to the beginning of Matthew. That when Jesus arrives on the scene, he brings his kingdom. Now, I have to say this because sometimes there's confusion around this. Jesus has brought his kingdom. It's his rule and reign. The kingdom of God is not the church. I need to make sure that there's a clarity on there. Now, here's why. Here's what D.A. Carson says. He says, Jesus' church is not the same as his kingdom. The two worlds belong uh, to different concepts, to one people, uh, to one to people, and to the other to rule and reign. But neither must they be opposed to each other, as if both cannot occupy the same place and time. The messianic reign is calling out the messianic people. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The people are being gathered. Now, this this next statement is the reason I, I wanted to share this quote, but I needed to give us context. The church is an outpost in history of the final eschatological community. Now, he's a theologian, so he's going to use really fancy terms. Let me explain what he says again. He says, the church is an outpost in history of the final eschatological community. The the word eschatological is like last days. Here's what he's saying. Think of all the groups that exist, all the kingdoms that exist, all the peoples that exist. The last group to exist as an outpost, which we exist right now, will be the church. When it's all said and done, every kingdom will fall. Every group will be done away with. They're all going to be washed away. And right now we exist as an outpost to the last.